Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that we can grow in you, that there is this vibrant, living, breathing relationship we have with, with the Heavenly Father, creator of the universe, the Lord of all. So Father, we take this time to focus our hearts and minds on the blessing and the gift that we have and being able to interact with you, to know you, to hear from you, to speak to you, and to be spoken to by you. Father, open our hearts, open our minds to a depth of relationship with you that is beyond what we've ever experienced, each one of us. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain in the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. As I come to this conversation this week on the topic of prayer, I think I'm painfully aware of the fact that prayer for the believer can really be a daunting task. As I kind of reflect on the years of ministry and I kind of take an inventory of where we see, particularly I think, the American church as it relates to prayer, you discover that prayer is not an easy thing for people to engage in. I think specifically in our society, to, to see a, a, um, a, a lifestyle that is consistent and conscious, committed to prayer, uh, is not something that we see very often. I think I remember hearing um, years ago, there was a statistic that was floating around that stated the average minister, the average pastor prays seven minutes a week. I don't know if it's gotten better, but I I want you to understand the commentary that that is. You realize us pastors get paid to pray, right? Right? Like, I mean, every single day, I could, I could commit two and a half hours in my office to prayer, and not a single person in this church would be upset about that, right? You'd all be like, our pastor's a praying pastor. That's awesome. So I can spend as much time as I want as a pastor praying, and nobody's going to call you out for it. And in America, the average minister spends seven minutes a week. How do you think that translates across the rest of the congregation? So I think it's pretty easy to say that encouraging people to have a consistent, conscious, engaged lifestyle of prayer is a daunting task for most Christians in America today. I've often read stories of great men and women of faith, and I'm blown away by the commitment they have to a lifestyle of prayer. Men like John Hyde, who was a missionary to India, who struggled for years um, to reach the lost for Christ until one winter he was so moved to pray that he would spend entire nights with his face laid out on the ground in prayer to God that he would move in a mighty way. 
And what was produced by that commitment was a great revival of thousands of people coming to know Jesus Christ. Or George Mueller, the man who started orphanages in England, not by asking for money, but by praying. All he would do is he would pray. When they would come to a point in which the kids needed to be fed or the kids needed to be clothed, he would gather them around he would pray. And time and time and time again, there'd be a knock on the door and whatever was needed would be delivered. Not because he was a great fundraiser, because he was a man who was committed to prayer because he believed in God as his provider. Or the man that I mentioned last week, Jonathan Edwards, man who was the catalyst for the Great Awakening. And as I said last, last week, he would get up at dawn every single day and he'd go into the woods and he would spend hours in prayer. But what's fascinating about him is that was a lifestyle that started when he was a teenager. As a teenager, he built for himself a shed in the woods that he would call his, his prayer closet. And as a teenager, he would go and he would pray and he would seek the face of God. Every time I hear these stories, I'm blown away because in comparison, I feel so ordinary in my prayer life. That when I hear these stories, I think these are men, these are women who were de devoted and committed to God, to the ministry, to, to the church, the same way I claim to be. And yet the time that they would spend in prayer so um, dwarfs the time I do. And the fact is, I, I do pray. I mean, I can say with confidence I beat seven minutes a week easily. But these lives seem so incredibly out of reach, right? And it's for this reason that the passage I just read gives me comfort. Look again at what is said in the book of James. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It says the prayer of a righteous person has great power, and it's working. I think the better attempt at translating the Greek here is, is what we find in the King James Version. This is something that, from which we get the, 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 the title of our week. But the, the Greek has this, has this really special meaning that I think we lose a lot of in the translation. The King James Version, I think, gets it close when it says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That essentially what we're seeing here is that there's a key to prayer that avails much. That this key that, that allows an ordinary person like me, like you, like Elijah, apparently, to bring forth a prayer life that is powerful in its working. That's actually the reason why I, I take comfort in this passage. That's why I say I take comfort reading this passage because the example he uses here is Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man like us. His reference here is the story of Elijah in the battle atop Mount Carmel, the, the, the unfolding of what took place 
and ultimately led to the apex, which was that, that, that incredible story of fire coming down from heaven and, and, and setting, setting ablaze the, the altar. The nation of Israel, by and large, had turned from God and began to worship foreign idols. The king had married Jezebel and, and he had adopted her gods and as a result, the prophets of God became the enemies of the state. And the prophets of Baal became the ones who were the emissaries, the, 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 the right-hand people for the king and his queen. And Elijah was at the top of the mo- most wanted list. He was known as the prophet of Israel and so he stood for God and everyone else stood against him. And so he found himself in a place where he was kind of on the outs, where, where he, had, he had kind of been, um, uh, uh, been kind of displaced as a spiritual leader. In addition to this, God kept giving him prophecies that would condemn the king and condemn the queen, which made him even more hated by them. In fact, it made him hunted by them. He prophesied that there would be a great drought. And that drought happened, and so they began to blame him. And this is what what set the stage for the battle that we talked about on the top of Mount Carmel with with, with the prophets of Baal. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible to me. It's one of the greatest events that you could ever, that you could ever read in the Bible because it just is so, it, it is so spectacular in its nature, right? Here is this guy who, who, is, who, is, who is being hunted, who is being wanted, who is being set aside because of his obedience to God. God gives him a word. He, he speaks that word. The prophecy is such that it, that it shuts up the heavens and there's, and there's no rain. And so he's being blamed for it. He, he, he's looked at as the one who, who, who has made all the problems of Israel come to be. And so he challenges them. He challenges the prophets of Baal and says, listen, if I am this person, if I am the one who is kind of on the out, let's see whose God is true. And so he calls them to the top of the mountain and they set up, they, they, they set up altars. The prophets of Baal try and get Baal to respond with fire, try to get Baal to... to, to um, respond to their prayers and to their screaming and to their shouting and to their, and to their cutting. And nothing ever happens. I love this story because not only is it, does God respond in a spectacular way, but the manner in which Elijah goes about it is so like mocking. He just is in their face, right? They're shouting and they're dancing, doing all these machinations and and, and, and Elijah throughout the whole thing is like mocking them. He's like, he's like saying to them like, oh, well, maybe, he's, maybe he needs to shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. He actually says that. And then after they fail and it's all said and done, he comes and he says, now it's my turn. And what you're asking, what I've asked you guys to do is too easy. And so he covers it with water and he floods the whole thing and puts a trench around it. And all he does is bow his head and pray a simple prayer, asking God to answer. And from heaven comes fire. Burns the whole thing up. How many of you think that's spectacular? Incredible, right? An unbelievable, incredible story. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have to do anything major. He didn't, he didn't have to dance around. He didn't have to shout. He didn't have to scream. He just bowed his head in faith. God answered incredibly. 
Now, as I read that story, as I reflect on that story, I think Elijah was something. But the reason why James is such an encouragement to me, because James says he was a man just like us. And, and, and what, that, what that calls me to is to look at the life that Elijah lived. And as I read further into the story, I realize he is a man just like me. Because after this spectacular event taking place, after fire came down from heaven, Elijah responded much the same way many of us respond when life gets hard. See, following it, he goes out into the, into the wilderness because he's afraid now that they're going to go after him and try and kill him. And this is where we pick up his life. He's just had God do this amazing thing, fire from heaven. He's shown the spectacular hand of God. And he goes in the wilderness and it says this. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked God that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. After this spectacular thing, after after this great move of God in his life, he goes into the wilderness and he says, I'm the only one who's faithful. I want to die. Doesn't that sound like us? Doesn't that sound exactly the way you and I respond at times? God does amazing things for us. And then when things get hard again, when things get difficult again, we're like, woe is me. My life sucks. God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm so tired. Right? Christian Eorism. And so I read this story and it says, it says, Elijah was a man just like me. And I go, Elijah was a man just like me. And yet God did incredible things as he would pray. To me, I read this and it is so exciting to realize that he was a man just like me. And yet God, as he prayed, did incredible things. James says here that he was a man like us. He gives us another insight into why he was able to be a man just like us, an ordinary man who did incredible things in his prayer life. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. Therein lies the key, I believe, to a prayer life that is powerful. It is discovered in prayers that are fervent. The effectual, fervent prayer avails much. Elijah, a man like us, prayed fervently. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. Fervency, according to what James is saying here, is the key. Fervency, a normal person, a person just like us, can close up the heavens and then reopen them because of fervency. So the question comes before me and it says, then what does it mean to pray fervently? 
If the key, if, if the key for an ordinary person to see God do the miraculous in their prayer life is to pray fervently, what does it mean to pray with fervency? The type of prayer that is being expressed here is, is kind of hard to explain. That's why the translation here from the Greek is, 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 is kind of nuanced. Why, why King James, I think, captures it more, um, more effectively when it says fervency. The type of prayer that is expressed here is one that is energetic, passionate, full of vitality. Barnes explains it like this. It is not listless, indifferent, cold, lifeless, as if there is no vitality in it or power, but that which is adapted to be efficient, earnest, sincere, hearty, persevering. It is to a kind of prayer inwrought by the Spirit, or the inwrought prayer. But the whole force of the original is expressed by the word energetic, and earnest. I sit and I wrestle with the ordinary nature of the prayer lives of the, of the modern Christian community. And I see at the center it missing fervency. And I wonder where do we as believers discover this fervency? What is, what is the, the construct of our prayers that helps create the, this, this deficiency of a prayer life? How is it that we as Christians, we pray so casually? We pray so coldly. We pray with very little vitality, very little uh, investment. Seven minutes a week. And when we come to moments of prayer, for many of us, we just kind of bow our heads and we mumble some things and we walk away from it. How is that the case? And how do we change our prayer life? I believe at least a part of the answer can be discovered in Jesus' instruction in regards to prayer. I often wonder when we come to the Lord's Prayer and Jesus Christ teaches on the Lord's Prayer, I often wonder if we catch the intro to that prayer. Before he expresses the Lord's Prayer, He's essentially going to the disciples and he says, I want you to pray then like this. And a lot of times we hear this story and we, we think about the story in, the, in the, the Lord's Prayer as Jesus Christ introduces it. And we're like, we, we're kind of left with that thing of, okay, memorize the Lord's Prayer and pray this over and over again. This is the prayer Jesus wants us to pray. But that's not what he says. In fact, it's interesting. He, 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 literally, says, he literally says, do not do repetitive a mindless pray like, like the others do. What he actually says in here is, I, when you pray, pray in this way. Pray in this manner. Pray like this. So what he's doing is he's stepping in. He's saying, I want to give you guys a framework for how your prayer should be. Not specifically what, our, what the words necessarily need to be, but where your heart's posture is, where, where you're at in your mindset what you're kind of praying from and through. And I want you guys to understand something, what we're talking about here. When we're talking about praying with fervency, it really is about a state of our heart and a state of our minds, right? 
that there is an energy to it, that there's an engagement to it, that there's a passion about it. So what we're talking about is being at a place where our hearts and our minds are positioned and we're praying out of that. So it seems to me that it makes sense that Jesus Christ comes in. He says, now what I want you guys to understand is when you pray, pray this way. That in praying in the way Jesus Christ is describing, it might produce in us the fervency that we need, okay? So it really is about posture of heart, posture of mind, and what we're putting into our prayer. And so Jesus Christ says, I want you to pray like this. He doesn't say repeat this prayer. He says, this is the pattern by which we should pray. And what is it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, even as I read that, because many of us have grown up in the church and we've memorized that over and over and over again, there is a problem we run into. The words tend to lose their meaning for us. We, we tend to not hear each of the declarations being made that are to produce the posture of heart and mind that will bring us a place of fervency in prayer. And so today, as we walk through this, I want you to hear it. I want you to understand specifically the posture, the heart's position, the declaration that we're making about where our spirit is, where our mind is at, that will produce in us a different place that I think is the fervency the word of God is talking about. Do you notice the central theme of the prayers? The central focus of the prayers It's our Father, isn't it? It's about God. It reflects a a passion and a submission and an elevation of the greatness and the sufficiency of God. It focuses the heart and the mind, not on the concerns of this world, but on the nature of God and his relationship to us. I believe just there is where we begin to see how it shifts our heart, how it shifts our minds to a place of a fervency, of a a passion that is completely different than the way most of us pray. Most of us, our hearts, our, 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 our focus, our eyes are on us. I need this God. I want this God. I'm desirous for this God. Am I wrong? Most of us pray that way. But Jesus Christ says, I want you to pray in this way. I want you to pray in this manner. And as I walk through this, it shows me that the focus of it is God himself. It starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a declaration that, Father, your name is holy. You are sacred. You are set apart. 
Father, you are in heaven over all of us, beyond all of us, worthy of our praise and honor and glory. Hallowed be your name. Prayers that are conceived in the cloud of God's holiness reflect a passion of God that grips the heart of the prayer. When we sit and we say, he is God, he is holy, he is above it all, he is beyond it all. It changes your posture, it changes where you're, what you're doing as you're coming into his throne room. He is God. I believe that one of the problems with the prayers of our culture is they tend to be conceived from hearts that view God as common. He's just another guy. He's my buddy. He's my friend. He is holy. I mentioned the passionate prayer life of Jonathan Edwards. And I believe at the core of that was his awe at the majesty of who God was. Edwards is known from a sermon that is taken from Revelations 19.50, which describes God's judgment on the nations at the end of time. It's entitled, um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, many of you might have heard of that, and it is famous in that as he was delivering this message, the, the, the imagery, the picture of the holiness of God was such that the holiness of God and his judgment on the sinfulness of God was such that they said that, 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 that men would cling to their chairs for fear of falling into hell. In, in this day and age, Edwards is often criticized for painting God as something other than benevolent and loving and kind. But I want you to hear the verse that is the, the um, text for his sermon. And then I want you to hear his commentary on his sermon. This comes from Revelations chapter 19, and it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And upon reading that verse, Edwards said, the words are exceedingly terrible. If it had only been said, the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful but it is the fierceness and the wrath of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive with such expressions carry in them? You see, Edwards, as he read this, stood before the majesty of God and is in awe of him. Edwards labored over language and over imageries, images and metaphors because he was so stunned and at awe in the realities of the God that he saw in the Bible. When he would come to prayer, when he would come to this place where he knew that the, that the very throne room of God was being opened to him to step in and speak in the presence of God, this is the image of God he had. Do you stand in awe of God in your prayers? Do you understand his majesty? Do you, do you understand how amazing he is? 
the entrance you have into the presence of the creator of the universe, who is so much holier, so much greater than anything we've ever experienced in our lives. We lack a fervency in prayer because we lack the image of God as holy and majestic and beyond. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy, hallowed, be your name. Your very name is holy. That I, that I shudder to speak it. And I have the opportunity to come to you and commune with you. Our Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I submit my will to you. May my desires and wants come in line with your wants and your desires. And may my life be used for the purpose of revealing your kingdom reign here on this earth. It is the heart that submits to the perfect will of God. Part of what robs us of our, of our fervency is we come to him in prayer, not passionate about him and his perfection, but desperate for him to come into alignment with our wants. Our prayer life is about us. And Jesus is saying, pray with the revelation of God and the will of God as your central ambition. I return to the life of Edwards. And I want you to see, he wrote this at age 19 in his diary. I have this day solemnly renewed my covenant and self-dedication which I made when I was received in the communion of the church. I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. I can challenge no right in myself. I can challenge no right in this understanding. This will, these affections that are in me, neither have I any right to this body or any members, no right to this tongue, these hands, nor feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell or taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I have been to God this morning and told him that I gave myself wholly to him. I have given every power to him so that for the future I would challenge no right in myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him and do not promise Almighty God that by his grace, I will not. What is the central purpose of our existence and our prayer? Is it us or is it God's glory? We lack fervency because we are fixated on ourselves, on our wants, on our desires and our prayers, instead of the will of God and his kingdom revealed. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. 
Jesus teaches us to pray with the mindset that God is our sole provider. The phrasing here is specific and expressive. Give us today our bread for today. In this, Jesus Christ reveals the shadow of provision of manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. All God would do is provide them that day, that morning, for that day, and they were to save nothing. So that every single day it would be reiterated that the only provider they have is God. That their only dependency is on God. And so Jesus says, give us for this day our daily bread. Father, I'm not looking beyond. I'm not, I'm not looking to other provision. I'm not looking to other things. I know that you will provide for me today, right now, for this day. And I trust you for tomorrow. This prayer puts at the center of the people of God's sustenance, God, God's sus, people's sustenance in the hands of God. It says, God, you will provide for me. Do we trust him completely when we pray? There is a passion and energy that comes when we see him as our sole source. God too often in our prayer life is our just in case. He's our fallback. When I've handled everything else and I can't do anything else, I try to go to him and say, God, I need you. But when he is our only hope, we discover a fervency that is indescribable. Elijah had no hope, but his hope in God. Standing on the mountaintop, his life was on the line, and he knew that the only person who could save him was God. And so he prayed a prayer, and he was visited with fire. Fortunately for us, our prayers tend to be other provision prayers. We depend on all these other things. And God, if you just give me this, or God, you'll just give me that. And we never put our focus completely and say, God, I trust you. I'm not even worried about trusting you for a week from now. I'm worried about, I'm trusting you for today. And tomorrow I'll trust you for today. And the next day I'll trust you for today. And the next day I'll trust you for today. Because you are my provider. I can imagine how much that would have played in the life of George Mueller when the last thing Mueller would see before he bowed his head were the hungry faces of orphans. I bet he prayed fervently. Our Father, forgive our debt as we forgive others. A passion and energy is born of the deep revelation of God's merciful, gracious work in our lives. He has forgiven you. When a Christian loses the impact of those words, I think our prayers go cold. He has forgiven you. All your sins. All that you've done that have separated you from the holiness and the gloriness of our Heavenly Father. He's forgiven you. 
He did it through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can go to him and you can pray this prayer and say, God, forgive me. And because of what Jesus Christ did, he does. We Christians lose so much when we forget just that truth and that reality in our prayer life. This is the power of daily standing before the cross of Christ and his work on that cross for your redemption. You want to fan the flames of Christian passion? Contemplate Romans chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Or Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Or Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. Prayers of passion are discovered when we pray them in the shadow of the cross and the mercy that is revealed in that act. Daily pray with the full weight of his, of, of the, of his work of grace in your life. Those prayers of humility and gratitude will produce a fervency and a posture of heart that is thankful for it all. Our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Finally, we pray with our understanding of our complete dependency on God for our spiritual well-being. We rarely speak about the curse of sin, the cost of giving in to temptation. We live in a world that has shunned the call of self-denial, that increasingly encourages people to pursue their desires as, as acts of self-actualization. Pursue what you want, what you desire. And so often we, we drag the temptation of the world into our prayer life. It's funny because James, in the previous chapter, tells us the reason we don't have prayers answered is because we ask with the wrong motives. For our own pleasure, because we desire worldly things. He warns us prior to, the, prior to, 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 to his teaching that we read in, in James 5, he warns us and he says, listen, the reason your prayer life is so, it, it, you're not getting what you're praying for is because you, you, pray, you pray with the wrong motivation. You pray that your passions and your desires will be fulfilled. You, you look at the things of the world and, and you pray to get the things in this world. And if you don't get them, you get depressed, you get upset. That's why James in that passage actually says, don't you realize God is a jealous God? 
You guys are looking for your fulfillment in the things of this world. The temptations of this world is what's driving your prayer life. And Jesus says to us, God, lead me away from that temptation. That our prayer is to say, take me away from those temptations. That my heart and my mind would not be fixated on the things of this world. When we are fully aware of the spiritual dangers that exist and the temptations of this world, and we trust our Father to protect us, we will become passionate in our prayers because we realize the destruction that is calling us, the death that we are leading, that we are being led towards. Father, lead me away from the temptation of this world. I want you and only your will. When we understand the temptations can destroy us, fervency in prayer will be found. God, I need you. Our expression of Christian faith, a faith that, that, that is us-focused instead of God-centric, I believe is at the core of our inability to discover fervency in prayer. God is still gracious to us. God still meets us where we're at. But we are missing out on the beauty of God's face. Our prayer lives are far too often about ourselves and are not about God's face. And as a result, we will not experience the fervency of prayer that brings forth fire for God's glory. Do you pray in full light of his majesty? Is your greatest desire in your prayer his will accomplished to the fullest? Do you seek in your prayer a daily life of faith dependent on the provision of God and God alone? Do you pray in light of his grace? His forgiveness extended to you in the reality of your sinfulness. And are you praying fully aware of the destruction that awaits the offense that we commit against our holy, gracious God when we give in to the temptations of this world. We call this week the fervent week of prayer. And so my encouragement to you is let us discover a fervency in our prayer so that we might see his hand move and the fire of God fall. It means changing the way we pray. As you go through this week, I want to encourage you to every day take a portion of the Lord's Prayer as we did this morning. And focus your heart and your mind on each one of these steps. Engage in it. Not just for a minute or two or three, but step into it and discover in him the glory of God revealed in the fervency of your prayer.